Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am covering now Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 17, the fifth and the sixth seal. The seal referring to the scroll, the book, the testament, which contained the new covenant, which the seals of which only the slain Lamb of God was able to open. We learned all about that in chapter 5, and then in chapter 6 we look at the seven seals, or six of the seals, actually. In the first part of chapter 6, we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Those were the first four seals. The first seals of Jesus riding on a horse, conquering, using the pagan nations of Rome in order to conquer apostate Jerusalem. That's the white horse. And then the the black horse was that of famine. Excuse me, the red horse. The second horse was that of war because of the blood, red blood. And the third horse was the black horse of famine. The fourth horse was the pale green horse of death which include war and famine, but also pestilence and wild beast. So that's the bad news. Because why was all that judgment coming upon Israel? Because of what we see in the fifth seal, the souls of those slain because of the word of God. So we'll start now in Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the land? I'm translating gay there, on the earth is on the land. Now, first question. I saw underneath the altar, and I can't help it, but in English I keep thinking underneath means like you got the altar on top and then beneath the ground, right directly under the altar, are the souls of the slain martyrs. But that doesn't make any sense. I looked at all the English translations I could see, and they used the word under. And finally, what I finally came to is that underneath the altar means you're looking at the scene from the top of the altar. And if you look directly in front of the altar altar in, in the center, there's the souls of those who were slain. So that's what it means. It means underneath looking at it from the top. Now, the altar has not appeared in this scene of the throne room of God. The four living creatures disappear at this point, and apparently the altar just pops up in front of the throne. If you think about it, God on the throne, that's like the altar, that's like the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament tabernacle or temple. And you go through the holy place, and then you go through the front door there. And what do you see? You see the bronze altar. So we still, we're still looking at the throne room of heaven as it is reflected in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Now, that altar, of course, is the bronze altar. It's not the golden altar because this is the altar where sacrifices were made. And, of course, we have bloody sacrifices here in the New Testament in the vision. But, unfortunately, it was not the sacrifices of animals. It was sacrifices of believers in Jesus. Now, the imagery would be clear to those who read this book because the image is clearly taken from the Old Testament bronze altar in front of the temple. The blood of the slain victim would stream down the sides of the altar and form a pool around its base. So the blood there is the life and the soul. Soul and life is the same thing. So you see blood down there, so that's the same thing as the life of the animals down there. And likewise, you see the life of the Jewish, of the Christian martyrs down there. Now, John's readers would, of course, realize it was the Jewish priest who had made the sacrifice, just as they sacrificed the animals in the Old Testament. They were sacrificing Jesus' believers in the New Testament. Jerusalem was the murderer of the prophets, Matthew 23, 34-37. That upon you, Jesus says, may come, this is, in the, this is right before the Olivet Discourse, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Luke 13, 33-34. 
This is Jesus talking again to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. In other words, it's just impossible for a prophet to live before Jerusalem kills it. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which kills the prophets. So, these are Christians who have been killed by apostate Judaism, rabbinic pharisaical Judaism. Now, you might ask the question, how can John see souls? A soul is a life. The question is, is how can John see a soul since a soul is immaterial? Well, if you take soul as a life, the life is not immaterial. For example, there were 23 souls on board that downed aircraft. Well, that means 23 lives. Now, these people have been slain because of the word of God. By now, each of the seven churches would have martyrs. Jewish apostates who had used the power of the Roman state to kill Jesus were now doing the same to Jesus' followers, for example, Antipas in Pergamum. Antipas is lost to history. We don't know who he was, but he's mentioned in Revelation 2.13. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. That's at Pergamum. And there were other mar- martyrs too. Jesus has said in Matthew 10:17, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, to the Sanhedrins, and they will scourge you in the synagogues. The councils were in the synagogues throughout Israel, and once they decided you were guilty, they'd whip you right there in the synagogue. And, of course, they were whipping the early Christians for, bl- for alleged blasphemy. So these souls have been slain because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they had maintained, the testimony of Jesus. Verse 10, And they cried out with a loud voice. Now, if... People are crying out, and, and they've already been killed. There perhaps is some relevance for theology concerning the intermediate state. You can use this verse to oppose two things. Number one, that the soul is extinguished after death. These martyrs' souls were not extinguished after their death. They were crying out. The second thing you can oppose with this verse is that the soul sleeps after death. Those martyrs weren't sleeping. They were crying out. And that's nice, but I still have a problem with using what's in a symbolic vision to base our view of the afterlife on, even though I do not believe in soul sleep and I do not believe in annihilation. I think those doctrines are, quite frankly, awful. But I don't, I'm not sure you can use this verse to contradict those awful doctrines. At any rate, these souls, these martyrs, were crying out, How long? Many Christians might think, might have thought back then, If I'm serving the king, why doesn't he protect me? Well, there's no promise that when you serve the king that you won't get martyred. I wish that was in the Bible, but it's not. And there's a Christians even to this day that are being killed for Jesus. There was just a story about a year ago. Cannibals got him. He was on some island out there in the in Asia. I forgot who he was. Caught him and ate him. Christian guy. Tragic story. Except he's with Jesus now. Well, these martyrs are crying out, how long, O Lord? Well, actually, it wasn't that long because 87, he was coming very quickly, assuming John wrote about 65 or so. How long will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? Now, God is a God of justice, and if people have killed his believers, that means there has to be justice served for that. Somebody's got to pay. How long will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? So when Jesus paid, that was when he destroyed the people who killed these martyrs, when he destroyed Jerusalem and Israel in AD 70. Now, this idea of vengeance by the Lamb of God contrast the effete modern church with this. We think it's somehow unchristian to pray for God's wrath to be poured out upon the enemies and persecutors of the church. No, it's not. Read the book of Revelation. This vengeance was called for during the new covenant. How about this? Jesus called down judgment on the persecutors. He called his judgment on the persecutors the days of vengeance. 
when he avenges the unjust things that have been done. Luke 21, 22. For these be the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. That, of course, is the Olivet Discourse, Luke's version, when Jesus destroys Jerusalem and he avenges those who have been killed. Revelation 2, 23. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. I'm going to pay you back for what you did. In other words, how? I'm going to kill your children with death. Now, he's referring there to the children of Jezebel at Thyatira. But this is in the New Covenant, folks. He's killing people in the New Covenant. Little Jesus, meek and mild, the Lamb of God. We're going to, at the end of this Bible study, we're going to look at a phrase called the wrath of the Lamb. Little Jesus, meek and mild. I was on a Zoom call with some old church friends from about 40 years ago or so, and I mentioned we were talking about praying for our enemies, and I said, yeah, I'm praying for some enemies that are like Black Lives Matter. They're our enemies. They're the enemies of the church. And after somebody got over the horror of me saying something bad about Black Lives Matter, not knowing what Black Lives Matter stood for, the next thing that people were having trouble with is I looked at the Zoom screen at the Hollywood Squares and the Gallery View, was they couldn't believe that I said that I was praying for them, and then I was praying that God would smash the teeth against the rocks. Well, that might seem a little strange, but it's not really, because we pray for individual soul salvation, but when you are in a position of authority like David was when he said smash their teeth against the rocks, you are doing God's will because God smashes the teeth of his enemies against the rocks. And because we're so weak, we can't pray that way. We need to pray against those who have raised up their fist against the church, and the church is full of a bunch of wussy pusses that are afraid to say anything negative against the culture. And as a result, we're getting swamped. But Jesus didn't act that way. He says, I'm going to kill her children with death. And these martyrs were saying, avenge our blood. In other words, pay back those. Does that say, does that sound like Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? I don't know. I never have figured out how Jesus could say that. He had a lot of grace there. But that prayer wasn't answered because they, the, the, the judgment of God did fall on those who killed Jesus. And the martyrs were praying that. So they got their prayers answered. And again, avenging our blood on those who dwell on the land is referring to the Jewish leaders in Israel, not earth. It should be translated land. Gay there can be translated either way. We go now to Revelation 6:11, And there was given to each of them a white robe, each of these slain martyrs, a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Now, these overcoming martyrs were white, and white, of course, stands for purity. They've been washed white by the blood of the Lamb, not according to their own works, of course, but by Jesus' work. They were told that they should rest for a little while. They had to stay, stand pat. They had to wait a little bit because there's still some more bad stuff coming down. Again, the readers of the book of Revelation needed to have endurance and patience because all this judgments, all this seal and trumpet and bold judgments weren't going to happen all at once. It's going to take some time for it to play out. The number of their fellow and servants who were to be killed until these fellow servants and their brother and their fellow Christians who were still alive were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. And so Jesus tells John there are going to be some more martyrs coming on. I notice how blasé Jesus is about Christians getting killed. That always struck me. Big deal. More Christians are going to be killed. Well, to Jesus, death is no big deal. The murdered ones that are being killed, they're coming straight to him. He looks at things a lot, and he looks at death a lot different. I remember C.S. Lewis said that one time. He said, I'll never forget this. He was in World War I. He was talking about all the dead soldiers he saw everywhere, and that just grossed me out. And he said, you know, Jesus looks at this, or God, he looks at this a lot different than we do. 
we have a hard time with it. But at any rate, yeah, there's no verse in the Bible that guarantees that Christians will not be killed. I wish there was, but there's not. And here's an example of it. We go now to Revelation 6, verses 12 through 14. We are finished with the fifth seal, the martyrs in front of and in center of and under the altar. Now, notice how all this fits together. Let me put this together. The first seal is Jesus conquering his enemies. The second, third, and fourth seal, which make up those first four seals, make up the four horsemen of the apocalypse because because horsemen are riding as the seal is broken. Those second, third, and fourth seals refer to all of the bad judgment that's coming on Israel. Red horse of war, black horse of famine, pale horse of death. That's the bad news. And then we see in the fifth seal, those who have been murdered by the apostate Jews calling forth the judgment in the first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now we go to the sixth seal and we're going to see the destruction of Israel big time. Let me read verses 12, 13, and 14. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Now, here we have six examples of what we might call decreation rhetoric, things of nature that are being shook up or destroyed or which are being made to operate not in their normal natural way. Decreation, because God created the earthly things and then He just, and here in these metaphors, he is destroying these earthly things. So the, the salvation of God's people is spoken of in terms of creation and the destruction of those who have revolted against God is spoken of in terms of decreation. Now, to show you this, and I'm going to spend a lot of time on this, because this is where the literalists go crazy about predicting literal things going to happen at the end of the world. All hell breaks loose, you know, especially when the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. Hi there, the nuclear bomb's going to blow us all to hell. Except we've already been raptured and we're in heaven, of course. We're going to blow all the tribulation saints to hell and Jews, too. But that's not the way these phrases should be interpreted. Well, first of all, let's look at how God's people are mentioned in terms of creation. Second Corinthians 4, 6, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. That's in Genesis 1, when God created the heavens and the earth. He commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Let there be light. That God has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So a new creation, the, the spiritual creation of a Christian is likened into the physical creation of the universe. When God said, let there be light, he also shines light in our lives, and we have become we become new creations, even as the earthly creation becomes a new creation, a new physical creation. Second Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away, behold, old things become new. So you see, a Christian is a new creation, creation rhetoric. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are created. We're a new creation. Ephesians 4.24, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So God creates a new man when he gets you saved, a new person. Colossians 3.10, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So the new man is a creation. But now, decreation scripture is always used in the Old Testament prophets as a indicator of regime change. There's some nasty empire or some nasty kingdom that is going to be destroyed by God. It could be Babylon. It could be Assyria. 
It could be Jerusalem, the apostate Jerusalem. Now, these, this Old Testament imagery of destruction of created things is not meant to be taken literally. I cannot emphasize that enough. Now, as we go through these Old Testament decoration scriptures, we're going to see that the physical creation survived. For example, the moon turned to blood, but it didn't disappear. The sun got dark, but it didn't disappear. However, the people under judgment did not survive. They're destroyed. And notice we go through them that you could explain some of these phenomena. For example, the moon turns to blood. You could take it not literally and say it has to do with our perception because of the stuff in the air, the nuclear dust and the air gets in front of the moon and makes it look red to us. Now, a lot of literalist, fundamentalist, dispensationalist, pre-tribbers, they do that. They say, well, the moon doesn't really turn to blood. It just looks like it turns to blood. Well, the first question I have, I thought you were a literalist. If it says the moon turns to blood and you say it doesn't turn to blood, it just looks like it turns to blood, you're not being very literal, are you? You're not being true to your own fundamental, theoretical, foundational principles. So you could explain away some of these things as being how we look at them, but some of these things we cannot take it as being literal or as being perceived to be something other than literal. For example, stars falling to the earth. Folks, if that happens, it's going to fry the earth. So what I'm saying is, is all of this decreation rhetoric, which I'm about to take you through, is symbolic. It is not meant to be taken literally. As you listen to me, ask yourself, is this prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, meant to be symbolic or literally physical. Now, in our verses here, Revelation 6, 12, and 14, 12, 13, and 14, we see six examples of decreation rhetoric. I'm going to take you through every example. Go to an Old Testament prophet who prophesied the same way, and I'll ask you, where was the literal fulfillment? It wasn't there. So, if it's not there in the Old Testament, why do we expect it to be literally fulfilled in the New Testament, apocalyptic rhetoric was never meant to be fulfilled literally. We use the Old Testament as our hermeneutical principle. Remember, the book of Revelation quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the Bible. You have to understand the Old Testament and understand the New. Why is it that Kim LaHaye and Hal Lindsey never refers back to these Old Testament prophecies? I read tons of those books, and I never once heard this. From the futurists, they, I'm, I'm afraid that they don't want to let us know this because it would mess up their preconceived idolatries. Oh, excuse me, their preconceived conceptions. All right, I said there were seven decoration instances. We'll start with the earthquake. The earth is supposed to be solid, but when it starts shaking, that's, ooh, I mean, that's creation not behaving properly. So let's look at that. Job 9, 6, which shaketh the earth out of her place and the pillars thereof tremble. Psalm 18:7. then the earth shook and trembled the foundation also where the hills moved and were shaken. Why? Because he was wroth, as the King James puts it, because he was angry. When he's angry, that means judgment. That means the earth shaking. The hills are shaking. Psalm 18:15. then the channels of water were seen and the foundations of the world were discovered at thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils. In other words, God's angry. He splits the earth open and you can see the underground water running through the earth because the earth has been opened up foundations of the world were discovered as earthquakes psalm 62 thou hast made the earth to tremble thou hast broken it heal the branches thereof for it shaketh the earth's trembling the earth doesn't literally tremble well i guess you could say earth trembles when there's an earthquake but again that's not the main point of these prophets now here's one i always quote to go my go-to verse isaiah 13 13 through 14 this is referring to isaiah's prophesying about the destruction of babylon by the medes the medes and the persians Isaiah 13, 13 through 14, Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place, in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. So we see God's 
wrathful and he's angry and the heavens are shaken and the earth is going to be removed out of her place. There you see decreation rhetoric, earthquakes being associated with God's anger and wrath. Isaiah 24, 19 through 21. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage. Sounds like the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall, not rise again. Ah, transgression, there is the sin mentioned with the earth shaking. And it shall come to pass in that day, Isaiah continues, that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high, and the kings of the earth upon the earth. So God's going to punish these. And notice that punishment is associated with the earth reeling to and fro. Punishment is associated with earthquakes. Nahum 1.5, the mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. This was a prophecy against Nineveh, and it referred to the eventual destruction of Assyria by Babylon. That's not talking about, Nahum's not talking about a literal earthquake. He's talking about judgment on Nineveh, regime change. Assyria down, Babylon up. Isaiah 5.25, therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people, and he hath stretched forth his hand against them, and hath smitten them. And the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger is not turned away, but the, his hand is stretched out still. So there you see anger. The anger of the Lord kindled against his people. That's against the Jews. Not against Babylon, not against Syria, but against the Jews. For all this his anger is not turned away. So you got anger associated with the hills trembling, which is another way of saying earthquake. Joel 2.10, the earth shall quake before them. That's a judgment on Judah by a plague. Hebrews 12, 26, 27, and 28, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying yet once more, I shake not the earth also, but also heaven. There's an earthquake, and this is associated with the Jewish temple, which the rabbis often refer to as heaven and earth. That's an interesting Bible study in itself. Just take my word for it right now. Right now, And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So there you have earthquake and the shaking of the earth, earth as well as heaven, is shaking and that's identified with judgment. Wherefore we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Okay, there's going to be regime change. All right, there's earthquake. That's decreation rhetoric example number one. Now let's go to example number two. The sun became black. Revelation 6, 12, the sun became black. We go to Job 9, 7. Now this God is the subject of this verse, and Job is speaking about God. Which commandeth the sun, and it riseth not, and sealeth up the stars. We're going to talk about the sun becoming black, and we're also going to throw in some other verses here about the other heavenly lights going out as well as the sun. Lights going out in the heavens. (laughs) He commands the sun, and it riseth not. Now, you really think that that's literal? Do you really think that the sun didn't rise one day? Think of the implications as far as gravity, as far as the physical operation of the earth. Did the sun ever not rise before Job's time or during Job's time or after Job's time? Come on. It's not literal. Job 25, 5, Behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not. There's The moon just went dark. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. So you can't see the stars in their pure white light anymore. Ecclesiastes 12, 1 and 2, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw now nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them, while the sun or the light or the moon or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. In other words, let's 
hope that the evil days of judgment don't come when the stars are darkened again. Heavenly light's going out. And it mentions the sun too, by the way, which is mainly what we're talking about. When the sun is not darkened. Well, the sun is never going to be darkened. The implication is the sun will be darkened when the evil days come in Ecclesiastes. But we know that can't literally happen. Isaiah 5.30, And in that day they shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one look unto the land, behold, darkness and sorrow. And the light is darkened in the heavens. That's judgment against God's people, the Jews. Light is darkened in the heavens. Darkening heavenly bodies associated with the judgment on the Jews. Isaiah 13.10, For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause a light to shine. But that's the destruction of Babylon. I might have already mentioned that one. Sorry for the repeat. Isaiah 24.23, Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. This is a generic prophecy by Isaiah against the kings of the earth. Note that the sun is ashamed right before the new covenant church is set up. When the Lord of hosts shall reign at Mount Zion. That Mount Zion, of course, is a symbol of the New Testament church. But there's got to be judgment first. When the sun is ashamed, the sun is associated with judgment. The moon sh- and the moon shall be confounded too. That means it ain't going to shine. And the sun is ashamed. It means it's not going to shine. Ezekiel 32, 7 and 8. And when I shall put thee out, I will cover the heaven and make the stars thereof dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give her light. As all the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over thee and set darkness upon thy land. This is against Egypt. The lights of heaven are going out, including the sun. I will cover the sun with a cloud. That's actually not hard to imagine, but the idea is there as the sun goes dark. Joel 2.10, the earth shall quake before them, the heaven shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. So when the prophets talk about the heavenly bodies going dark, that means there's judgment coming. Here Joel was talking about judgment of the southern kingdom of Judah because of a plague. Joel 2.31, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. This was quoted by Peter in his Pentecostal sermon, the sun shall be turned into darkness. Let me read that for you, Acts 2, verses 16 through 20. Peter is talking, he says, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And all your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men, young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, etc., etc., etc. Verse 19, And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Now, Peter is obviously referring the prophecy of Joel to what happened there at Pentecost. Because what he's talking about is there's going to be regime change. There's not going to be any more Pharisees and Sadducees preaching their view of who God is, of who Yahweh is. It's going to be Jesus and his servants because of the prophecies of the Holy Spirit by his, by his sons and his daughters. The sun never turned dark at Pentecost. It's just a symbol. Peter was using Joel as a symbol to show that things are changing around here. Joel 3.15, the sun and the moon shall be darkened and the stars shall withdraw their shining. All right, I think I've beaten that with a dead, beaten that horse to death. All right, that's the third decreation incident mentioned in Revelation 6. Actually, it's the second. Revelation 6, 12. Here's the third. The whole moon will become like blood. So let's look at that in the Old Testament. Joel 2, 31. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Literally 
or because of our perception? No, metaphorically, because this is apocalyptic rhetoric. Before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And, of course, he's talking about the judgment that's getting ready to come upon those who kill the Messiah. All right, that's the third decreation incident in Revelation 6. Those were all in verse 12. Now we go to Revelation 6, 13. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Now let's see if we can find some examples in the Old Testament of stars falling to the earth. Certainly not literally. Isaiah 34, 4. And all the host, that's the stars, all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down, as the leaf falls off from the vine, as a falling fig from the fig tree. So the stars are going to fall down out of heaven like figs falling off a fig tree. Now, you really think that's literal? Isaiah, by the way, was given a generic prophecy against all nations when he gave that prophecy. Notice the similarity of Isaiah 13, uh, 34, 4 with Revelation 6, 13, which says, And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree cast her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. So John, or Jesus, in John's Revelation, talks about figs being blown down to the ground by the wind, and Isaiah, when he's talking about prophecy against ungodly nations, he says, the stars shall fall down as leaves fall off from the vine and as a falling fig from the fig tree. I mean, it's almost a, it's almost a direct quote. Regime change. Let's look at Daniel 8.10. And it waxed great. That's the little horn. And it waxed great. But I'm, going to talk, I'm not going to talk about that right now. And it waxed great. Is traditionally interpreted as Antiochus Epiphanes, so we'll just assume that. And it, the little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid emperor who came in about 165 to 168, around there, and kind of rolled over Israel, made things pretty pretty bad for them, put a pig in the sanctuary, spread the pig juice all over the place. And it, Antiochus Epiphanes, the little horn waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. In other words... There was judgment on Israel through Antiochus Epiphanes. Hosts of the stars were cast down to the ground. Of course, that can't be literal because stars can't fall to the ground. Now, let's go to our fifth example of decreation rhetoric found in Revelation 6, verses 12 through 14. The sky is split like a scroll. But before we do, let's take a review of the first four examples of decreation in Revelation 6. Verses 12 through 13. Number one, it was a great earthquake. Number two, the sun became black. Number three, the whole moon became like blood. Number four, the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Number five, the sky split apart like a scroll. And number six, every mountain and island were moved out of their place. So, we are now on number five. The sky was split apart like a scroll. We read in Isaiah 34, 4, And all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. Now that is a, it's sort of hard to picture in my mind, at least, about what does the imagery look like. I think about a garment. You roll up a garment, or you roll up a scroll of paper back there in the ancient times, and it's like the heaven will be rolled up, just like a curtain. It'll be rolled up and tossed out because the garments are old. Isaiah 51, 6, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath, for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment. You roll up the garment and throw it away because it's old. And they that dwell therein shall die like matter. That's Isaiah making a generic prophecy against all the nations. So there's the sky rolling up like, rolled up like a garment, rolled up like a scroll. Psalm 102, verses 25 and 26, of old has... Thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, 
but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them. So the sky is rolled up because there's going to be some judgment going on. All right, the sixth example of creation rhetoric. Every mountain and island is going to be removed from its place. That's in verse 14 of Revelation 6. All right, so let's look at some Old Testament examples of mountains and islands being moved out of their place. Job 9, 5, which removeth the mountains and they know not, which overturneth them in his anger. You don't overturn a mountain, folks. It's poetic. Job 14, 18 through 19, and surely the mountain falling comes to naught and the rock is removed out of his place. The waters near the stones, thou washest away the things which grow out of the dust of the earth, and thou destroyest the hope of man. The mountains fall and come to zero. Notice the mountains turn to dust. They disappear. They're gone. You ever seen a mountain disappear? Job 28, 9 through 11, he put it forth his hand upon the rock. He overturns the mountains by his roots. You ever seen a mountain flipped over? It's great Hebrew poetry talking about the destruction of whatever nation or empire God's getting ready to destroy. Isaiah 41 4 and 5 and 15 and 16. Who hath wrought it and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The isles saw it, there's island, isles, and feared. Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument, having teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains, there's the mountains, mountains and the islands, and beat them small and make the hills, that's a small mountain, as chaff. Thou shalt fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them, and thou shalt rejoice in the Lord. So there, Isaiah is talking about mountains and islands being moved from their places because they're ground up like chaff and thrown up into the wind, and the wind blows them away. Ezekiel 38:20. The mountains shall be thrown down, and the steep places shall fall. That's spoken against Gog of Magog in Ezekiel 38, and the mountains are thrown down. So you see, I... I know uh, this is probably overkill, but I've gone through a whole bunch of Old Testament prophecies to make it clear that that type of rhetoric has nothing to do with literal destruction of heavenly bodies or heavenly or earthly entities. That's not what this rhetoric is about. We go now to Revelation 6, verse 15, 16, and 17. We'll finish up Revelation 6. Then the kings of the earth, and I'm going to translate that as the rulers of the land. Then the rulers of the land and the great men and the commanders and rich and strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, that's God, and from the wrath of the Lamb, that's Jesus. For the great day of their wrath, their, meaning God, and Jesus' wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So the bad guys are going down here. Now, that phrase, kings of the earth, I translated as rulers of the land, and I think that's what it should be. But it's interesting that David Chilton, who is a strong preterist, in fact, is accused of being an heretical preterist by many people. He wasn't when he wrote his commentary that I used. He says we should translate gay here as earth, as kings of the earth. And he says, okay, it's kings of the earth will hide themselves in the caves because they're going to be so shocked by what happened to Israel. Well, I'm sorry, I don't think Chilton's right there. I don't think the kings of the earth, let's say all the kings in the Roman Empire, they're going to really be all that scared about what happened to Jerusalem in AD 70? I don't think so. I think kings of the earth should be translated as rulers of the land. Now, the word king in the crosswalk lexicon, is get this. these definitions are given. Leader of the people, prince, commander, lord of the land, as well as king. Basileus, I think is the Greek word. 
leader of the people. Okay, how about ruler, leader of the land? Well, if you translate it as rulers of the land, it makes the judgment on Israel that's being referred to here, which fits right in with our theme of that all these judgments falling were falling on the land of Israel, not on the earth at large. Now, why are the rulers of Israel going to be trying to hide themselves in the caves and saying to the rocks, fall on us? Because the wrath of the Lamb has come is exactly what happened in the Jewish War, eighty sixty six through 70. Bad business if you're a Jewish leader, because you're going down, you're going to die. Now, let's look at what Old Testament passage that John is referring to here when he says every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves, and they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Well, John is making a clear allusion to Hosea 10, 6, and 8. Well, also, let's, he might have also been referring to Isaiah 2, 10, 19, and 21, so let me read that first. Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake terribly the earth, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake terribly the land. That's a judgment on the house of Jacob, as we see in verse 6 of Isaiah 2. It's talking about judgment falling on Israel, and it sounds very similar to what John is saying. Leaders, go into the rocks, hide in the caves. Well, it doesn't say leaders, but it's talking about the house of Jacob. All of them need to hide in the rocks. It's, John is clearly making a reference to Hosea 10, 6, 7, and 8. Hosea 10, 6, 7, and 8 says this, Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel as for Samaria, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. The high places also of Avon, the son of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall come up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. In other words, Israel's going to be ashamed, and so they're going to say, Shame means they're going to get their butts whipped. And so they'll say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. That's, of course, is the same language that John used here. He says, Every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks. The rulers of the land hid themselves in the caves and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us. So he's quoting Hosea 10, 6 through 8, and, he's, and Hosea is talking about judgment on Israel, so it makes sense that John is talking about judgment on Israel. But I've got something even better than that. Jesus also quotes Hosea 10, 6 through 8, and he is obviously talking about judgment falling on Jerusalem. He's on the Via Dolorosa. In Luke 23, verses 27 through 30, and he says that, and we read this. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, weep not for me. Daughters means the population of Jerusalem. Weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck, the breast which never gave suck which never nursed. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. Jesus is quoting Hosea 10, verses 6, 7, and 8. When he says to the daughters of Jerusalem, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us, he was referring to the coming judgment on Jerusalem. You know, they're crying because he's getting murdered, but he's getting, that's all right, there's going to be judgment for this. going to fall on Jerusalem. Of course, he wasn't happy about the judgment. He, you know, he said, I wish I could take you under my wings and all that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, he said the judgment was coming. Now, when he says... Weep for yourselves and for your children, daughters of Jerusalem. That word children is not the word for descendant. It's the word for the first generation. Your immediate children, not your descendants, your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, but your children, children in your immediate family. And that shows that he's talking about the destruction that's coming in one generation. 
This generation will not pass away until all these terrible things take place and this temple is torn down. That was fulfilled literally in AD 70. So Jesus himself was a preterist, folks. He, of course, he was orthodox because he was Jesus. But he was, so he was an orthodox preterist. He believed that judgment was coming in AD 70. And he quotes Hosea 10, 6 through 8 to talk about that judgment to show that the judgment was coming. And that's the same Hosea 10, 6, 7, and 8 that John is quoting here in Revelation chapter 6. So Jesus quotes Hosea 10, 6 through 8 as first century. John alludes to Hosea 10, 6 through 8. So doesn't it make sense to say that John was alluding to the first century? I think so. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished with the first six seals. And we're finished with chapter 6. In our next audio, we're going to turn to Revelation chapter 7. I'm going to try to do the whole 17 verses. I don't promise, but I'm going to try. And that chapter is talking about the 144,000 Christians are sealed. Sealed from the judgment that's falling on Israel, but not the Christians. They're sealed. They're not going to be destroyed. So this book is both a a book of judgment and a book of salvation. Judgment for the Antichrist and salvation for the followers of Christ. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.